The lakeshore feels particularly deserted today. Not a soul visible in either direction. And yet, as you begin to disrobe, there's a distinct feeling that you're not alone here. You run gleefully toward the placid water. The perpetually cold Lake Superior is a welcome reprieve from the suffocating humidity of this summer's day. You think, I should do this more often. But something feels off. The water is oddly still. Around you, bubbles start to appear, one by one, until they surround you on all sides. Your heart begins to beat faster. You turn to swim toward the shore. But something cold wraps tight around your feet. You jerk your legs, attempting to free yourself. But the cold grip just tightens and pulls. And as you're pulled deeper and deeper, the light from the surface slowly fading from view, you turn to see dozens of shadowy figures with bright, piercing eyes. They all stare directly at you as the last breath drains from your body. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Lake Superior, the largest of the Great Lakes of North America, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on your favorite podcast directory. Lake Superior is nestled at the intersection of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Ontario. Lake Superior earned its name due to its massive size covering 31,700 square miles, with an average depth of 483 feet. It contains 10% of all planet Earth's fresh water. By surface area, it is the largest freshwater lake in the world. Many natural wonders lie beneath its dark surface, including rocks that are estimated to be 2.7 billion years old, Around 51 species of fish can be found in Lake Superior, and on a single day at Duluth's Hawk Ridge, as many as 10,000 birds of prey may pass overhead in a given day. The first lighthouses on Lake Superior began operating at Whitefish Point and Copper Harbor, Michigan in 1849. Eventually, 73 lighthouses would dot the shores of the magnificent lake. While many of the lighthouses are abandoned or destroyed, a small number continue to function as active aids to navigation. Over the years, countless men and women have manned these buildings, 
often quite isolated from others. This type of rigorous isolation can do dangerous things to a person's mind. William Pryor sat at his desk, opened his journal, and began to write the log of his daily activities, starting with the date, April 16, 1901. For most of his life, he was alone in the lighthouse, but this hadn't bothered him much. He was something of a perfectionist, and rarely trusted others to do a better job than he could. Those who had worked for William knew that he had a ferocious temper, He was prone to explosive bouts of anger. After giving an employee a dressing down, William would retire to the lighthouse and continue the rant in his journal. However, William's sour disposition had changed when he'd hired his son, George. Over the course of a year, George had proven himself to be a capable employee. William's mood had much improved. William walked to the window and gazed out upon the lake, The wind howled over the water and past the walls of the lighthouse, giving an eerie sense of foreboding. His eyes scanned the pier, searching for his son who was doing some minor repairs. He found him at the very end of the pier, working dutifully. William was proud of his son's impressive work ethic. He made a mental note to compliment the boy when he returned home that evening. His son looked up from his work and caught his father's eye. As he did so, a gust of wind came off the lake. William watched helplessly as George, blown by the aggressive gale, struggled to maintain his balance. Then, George tumbled from the pier and out of view. William froze in petrified shock. Had he just watched his only son plummet to his grisly death? His heart was pounding in his chest. His breathing became shallow. William bounded down the stairs of the lighthouse, almost breaking the door in half on his way out. He sprinted for the pier, consumed with panic. When he reached the dock's edge, he noticed George, struggling in the freezing water. William lay flat and extended his right arm, beckoning George to take hold of it. After several attempts, George finally gripped his father's hand. Using every last ounce of strength, William hauled George out of the water and onto the safety of the pier. The men lay side by side, panting, exhausted. William felt a wave of relief sweep over him. His son was alive. Although George looked to be bleeding from his leg, It was nothing some antiseptic and a hot glass of whiskey couldn't fix. William asked his son if he would like to take the rest of the day off to recuperate. George proudly informed his father that he would continue working as usual. William returned to his lighthouse duties, relieved. Night was falling, and William put on his coat to fight the cold. He hadn't seen George since his fall earlier and was beginning to become concerned. William emerged from the lighthouse into the icy cold of the night. The wind howled. He called George's name. There was no response. He called again, this time louder. Still, there was no response. William bounded into the endless darkness, 
searching every nook and cranny of the vast property for a trace of his son. He turned a corner into a clearing, and it was then that he saw George's slumped body over a large rock. William screamed in shock. He raced towards his son's body, cradling it in his arms. He tried to speak to him, but the boy was clearly unconscious. William felt something wet on his hand. He lifted it up and saw that it was dripping with blood. The ugly gash on George's leg had bled him dry. He was too late. George was dead. Ever the professional, he dug a grave. With each scoop, he felt his arms shake. His sorrow took a heavier toll than his digging. The shovel became heavier and heavier as the purpose of the hole sank in. Tears streamed from his face, sharply stinging as the cold night air struck the liquid on his skin. He wiped his face, dirt smearing under his eyelids, only for the dirt to wash away with each fresh batch of tears. When the hole was finished, he lifted his cold, dead son, blood splotching on his clothing. He threw the corpse into the pit, his old bones too tired to lower the body gently into the ground. The sun fully set, and the lake was dark. He left the pit open, knowing he must return to the lighthouse. The light needed tending, no matter whose son was dead or living. The following day, William's grief began to overwhelm him. He knew he had to cover his son, but he almost couldn't bear the thought of looking at his corpse again. He began to hear voices in his head, whispering of his guilt, telling him he was responsible for the death of his son. The voices rose to a bewildering cacophony. William collapsed on the floor, hysterically sobbing for his son. He lay on the ground for hours until finally he worked up the resolve to see his son laid to rest. He plodded to the grave, each step more difficult than the last. As he approached the hole, he noticed something sticking out from the ground. His son's leg was mangled and torn, chunks of flesh missing, wolves' tooth marks furiously scattered across his skin. He peered into the grave to see a flock of crows picking at George's eyeballs. He picked up his shovel and scooped dirt onto the crows, forcing them to fly away. William knew that this was all his fault. He could have buried him. He should have buried him. Instead, he lit the lamp, and now his son's corpse was desecrated and defiled. Food to the crows and wolves, scavengers and loathsome beasts of the night. He had not done the work, and his son paid the price. This was all his fault. The crushing guilt was too much for him to bear. He knew there was only one way to silence the voices in his head. Only one way to banish the memory of his greatest sin forever. Despondent. He grabbed his gun and some cyanide and set out for the woods. He stumbled through the trees, numb, 
wanting it all to be over. But when he got to a clearing and looked down at his hands, he was suddenly paralyzed by choice. Should he use the gun or the cyanide? He couldn't decide. He heard footsteps coming toward him. He turned to see who was there. The hairs on his neck immediately stood to attention. The boy's legs still bore the ghastly wound. William tried to speak with him, to ask him if he was okay. He yelled at the apparition, pleading with him to respond. Stone-faced, the specter produced a length of rope and handed it over. William offered no resistance. He took the rope from George and approached a nearby tree. His son watched silently as William tied the rope around a branch. He stepped up onto a nearby tree stump and placed the noose around his neck. He took one last look at George's disquietingly blank expression before stepping off the tree stump. Standing on a tall, rocky bluff overlooking Lake Superior lies Big Bay Point Lighthouse. Built in 1897, it was originally a duplex, with one side for the lighthouse keeper and the other for the assistant keeper. Those who worked at Big Bay Point were incredibly isolated, so much so that the keeper's wives had to homeschool their children, in addition to the usual housekeeping and food preparation. In 1901, the real William Pryor, the first keeper of the lighthouse, watched his only son, George, die from a tragic fall while working at the lighthouse. William tended the lighthouse for two more months, but went missing shortly after. 17 months later, William's decomposed and skeletal body was found hanging from a tree. Strychnine and a shotgun were on the ground beneath him. In 1961, the lighthouse and surrounding property was sold to a private owner. It is currently the only operational lighthouse with a bed and breakfast in the world. To this day, visitors of the Big Bay Point Lighthouse Bed and Breakfast report being awoken in the night by the ghost of a man in Coast Guard attire at the foot of their bed. One minute he's there, the next, is vanished into the brick lighthouse walls. He's destined to remain there forever, gazing out at the pier, haunted by the memory of the sun he couldn't save. We'll have more from Lake Superior after this. Now, back to the story. Lake Superior has long been an important link in the Great Lakes waterway. Large cargo vessels called lake freighters transport commodities such as iron ore and grain across the vast body of water. However, Lake Superior has been known to be treacherous for ships. In the 70 miles of its southern shore, between Grand Marais and Whitefish Point, lies an area of the lake known as the Graveyard of the Great Lakes. Because of its unusually low water temperatures, when human bodies sink in the lake, they tend not to resurface. As the saying goes, Lake Superior seldom gives up her dead. Captain Diller and First Officer Townsley 
surveyed the endless stretch of water in front of them. It was a cool, crisp day without a trace of wind. They exchanged a knowing smile. Conditions like this would ensure a quick journey to Whitefish Bay. It would leave them plenty of time to grab a drink or two. This type of work could be monotonous. Load the ship up with containers of iron ore, make the trip across the lake to drop them off, and repeat. It helped to have someone pass the time with. Diller and Townsley had become fast friends. A call came in over the radio, asking Captain Diller to confirm the ship's position. He answered and advised they were on course for arrival at 3.40 p.m. as scheduled. He hung up, leaving a comfortable silence on the bridge. Diller and Townsley rarely took time to admire the lake like this, but it was really beautiful, the way it shimmered, iridescent. They continued to stare in awe. A white fog suddenly materialized before them, wispy at first, but quickly becoming dense. It hovered above the murky water like an imposing specter. Diller and Townsley were unnerved. The forecast had predicted clear and sunny weather, not fog. Captain Diller called the fog in to the Coast Guard, but the Coast Guard was as surprised as them. Another ship in the same area had just reported crystal clear conditions. Were they absolutely sure they saw fog? Diller and Townsley double-checked. They were sure. She assured them that as long as they could track their location via GPS, they would be safe to proceed. Outside the window, the fog continued to grow, a thick and menacing white cloud. Diller and Townsley could no longer make out anything beyond the window of the bridge. They were effectively blind. They had encountered bad weather before, but something about this was different. The encroaching fog had an unsettling presence to it, as if they were no longer alone. Captain Diller lowered the ship's speed. They were really looking forward to that after-work drink now. The men were startled by the loud beeping of the ship's sonar equipment. Captain Diller checked their position on the screen, but it was blank. There was absolutely no way to tell where they were. He couldn't understand. Could it be that something or someone was interfering with the ship's equipment? Diller and Townsley shared a disconcerted glance. The boat lurched and shook, waves rapidly rocking it to and fro. As it pushed forward, they could hear the ship grinding. Townsley pulled the reverse lever, attempting to force the boat into an emergency stop, but it refused to budge. He motioned for Diller to join him. They planted their feet, summoning all of their strength. They gave it a vigorous tug. Still, it refused to move. In a panic, Captain Diller reached for the radio, but there was no signal from the Coast Guard, just a grating static. Diller attempted to tune to a different frequency. Perhaps he could reach another ship and ask them for help. He searched and searched, 
until he found a frequency that seemed to be broadcasting something. Perhaps he was going crazy, but it sounded like someone breathing. Captain Diller begged whoever it was on the other end of the radio to respond, but the only sound was just more heavy breathing. As he pleaded for help, the other end of the line suddenly let out a blood-curdling scream. The men covered their ears. The piercing sound was almost too much for them to bear. Captain Diller turned to look out the window, the color immediately draining from his horrified face. Looming in the fog stood a hulking, rusted mass of metal. The enormous freighter barreled towards them, simultaneously spectral and imposing. There was nothing they could do. Diller and Townsley helplessly toppled to the floor, bracing themselves for a devastating impact. But there was just silence. The men looked at each other, perplexed. They tentatively rose to their feet, fearful of what they might see before them. What they saw was a picture of serenity. As quickly as it had arrived, the fog had completely disappeared. The freighter was nowhere to be seen. All that lingered was a trail of white foam in the water, exactly where the Fitzgerald had been. On a stormy night on November 9th, 1975, the iron ore freighter SS Edmund Fitzgerald left Duluth, Minnesota, bound for the Zug Island docks in Detroit, Michigan. Without the benefit of modern GPS tracking systems, she was unable to pinpoint her position in the lake, making her susceptible to the whims of the storm. Ernest McSorley, the Fitzgerald's captain, radioed a nearby freighter to inform them that the ship had begun taking on water. He requested this freighter be the Fitzgerald's radio eyes for the remainder of the trip to Whitefish Bay. But even with this assistance, the Fitzgerald never made it to the port. The last radio communication received from the Fitzgerald was at 7.10 p.m. Captain McSorley stated, quote, One of the worst seas I've ever seen. We are holding our own. End quote. The SS Edmund Fitzgerald sank shortly after. All 29 of the Fitzgerald's crew members perished when the ship went down. Their remains were never recovered. The wreckage of the Edmund Fitzgerald was discovered on November 14, 1975, 500 feet below the surface of Lake Superior, broken into two pieces. But many believe that the spirits of the 29 men lost on that fateful night continue to make the trip across the lake. In 1985, 10 years after the SS Edmund Fitzgerald sank, a commercial vessel spotted it sailing on Lake Superior. The crew claimed that they saw the large ship on a foggy night and reported a strange, eerie atmosphere as it appeared before them. We'll have more on Lake Superior after this. And now, back to the story. In 
It's estimated that 350 shipwrecks have occurred on Lake Superior. Because many of these ships were never found, the exact number will likely never be known. The largest loss of life on Lake Superior was in 1918, when French minesweepers Inkerman and Cerisols vanished in a violent storm. 78 crew members perished, and no wreckage of either ship was ever found. Several historic shipwrecks are visible to this day in Lake Superior. The Alger Underwater Preserve, right off Munising, Michigan, is home to the wrecks of the Smith Moor and the Bermuda. The lake bottom in this spot is composed of sandstone and limestone, which resist weathering. Because of this, there is excellent visibility in these waters, perfect for those who wish to gaze upon the fallen vessels. Tourists can take guided glass-bottom boat tours of these shipwrecks. For the adventurous sightseer who is looking to get up close and personal, it's possible to scuba dive to several of the wrecks. However, such an excursion is not for the faint of heart. While the lake is home to great beauty, many believe that the souls of those who perish there remain trapped beneath the water to this day. When her friend Lillian pulled out of their diving expedition at the last minute, Sarah was trepidatious. The Alger Underwater Preserve offers spectacular snorkeling and underwater photography, but she also found it kind of scary. Sarah resolved to make this solo expedition a brief one, just enough time to capture some photos of the famed wreck of the Smith Moor there would be time for further exploration in the future when she had someone else to watch her back. As she began her short journey from Osable Point to the site of the wrecks, Sarah was overcome with emotion. So many who made this trip before her were fated never to return. Their sorrow seemed to hang like a heavy cloud above the lake. When she reached her destination, Sarah paused for a moment before putting on her scuba gear. The serenity of the placid lake water betrayed the chaos and anguish of the events that had occurred here. Sarah hesitated. Maybe it would be better to turn back and try another time. But she had already come this far. She decided to forge ahead. After all, when Lillian saw the photo she captured on this expedition, there was no way she would miss the next trip. After suiting up, Sarah checked her scuba equipment one last time before plunging feet first into the icy water. The overpowering cold was a jarring shock to her system. It sent a tingle from her core all the way to her extremities. Before Sarah even had her bearings, a cloud covered the sun and darkness descended around her, obscuring everything from view. She attempted to swim her way out of the dark, but it seemed to have no end. She reached for her flashlight. With a click, it illuminated the frigid water in front of her. A shadow darted past her. In her peripheral vision, another shadow shot behind her. Perhaps Sarah was still adjusting to her oxygen tank, but she was beginning to feel a little dizzy. She paused, 
This was the point of no return. Should she abandon her mission and return to the safety of the surface? Or should she soldier on into the unknown? Sarah shone her flashlight below, the light catching the glint of some distant metal. And then she remembered the reason she came, the alluring wreckage, like a hidden jewel nestled below the lake. It had a pull over her. Sarah descended further into the depths of the gloomy abyss. The lower she sank, the more biting the cold became. It enveloped and overwhelmed her, to the point she could think of nothing else but the cold. Sarah tried to stay focused. She needed to have her wits about her on a dive like this. As she continued through the cloudy waters, it suddenly came sharply into view. The wreck of the Smith Moor. The rusted corpse of the majestic barge had been here for over 100 years. Sarah swam closer, in awe of how well-preserved the wreck appeared to be. She took out her camera and swam closer to the ship, fascinated by a large tear in the hull, like a gaping wound. She could only admire it for a moment, before the hairs on her neck stood to attention. She had the distinct feeling she was being watched. Every instinct in her body was telling her to flee. And yet, an unknown force seemed to beckon her inside the ship. Sarah ventured further until she crossed the threshold of the wreck itself. The suffering that occurred inside these decaying walls was palpable. Sarah was overcome with a deep sense of panic, the feeling that she too was about to experience the same fate as those men. She decided to take some quick photos and get out of there as fast as she could. She pointed her camera at a rusted piece of the ship's interior wall. When Sarah checked the camera's digital display, she was met with a terrifying sight. Instead of the rusted ship wall, all she saw were the blue bloated corpses of the men who had perished there. Her heart was pounding. It wasn't safe here. She quickly swam back the way she came, but something wasn't right. The large hole in the side of the ship that she entered through was no longer there. She tried to remain calm. Surely her mind was playing tricks on her. She traced along the hull of the ship, looking for an opening. But all she found were solid walls. Her heart was beating faster still, her body shaking. Sarah began to pound on the ship wall. Part desperation, part hope that she could break through the decaying husk of the vessel. But it was no use. There was no way out now the murky cloud of darkness began to appear around her again. And now Sarah knew she was about to become one of them. One of the souls lost in Lake Superior. Her hands shaking, Sarah checked her oxygen gauge. Fifteen minutes worth of air left. These would be the most excruciating fifteen minutes of her life.
While most people who explore the shipwrecks in Lake Superior return unscathed, one man has drowned while scuba diving in the lake. Witnesses said he surfaced, yelling for help, before he sank to the bottom for unknown reasons. His cause of death has yet to be determined, but the dark nature of the wreckage remains undeniable. Take a boat tour on one of Lake Superior's many scenic cruises to experience its wonder for yourself. And don't worry, with today's improved communication systems, there is very little chance of your boat running into trouble. With the advent of the internet and modern GPS, there is now radio reception on all parts of the lake and weather forecasts that can be obtained in real time. When visiting Lake Superior after a large storm, don't be surprised to see detritus from the past washed up on the shore. Glass, lumber, old pull tabs from beer cans, even coal used in factories of yesteryear. But be careful. The storm may also have dredged up some of the spirits of the lake. The spirits of those who never made it across. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by John Purcell. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>